0: Thanks for joining Sapelo Nerds, a coastal science podcast. I'm your host, Corinne. And I'm your host, Brittany. And we work at the National Estuarine
1: Research Reserve, or near on Sapelo Island, a Georgia barrier island. I am all healed up and ready to speak again, which is good because today we are going to talk about how to talk about flooding. There's a wrong and right way to talk about flooding? Sort of. I mean, it kind of comes down to knowing flood terminology, When people all have different names for the same thing, not only can it be confusing, but in the case of flooding, it can be dangerous. There may be some confusion about how communities should respond if inconsistent terminology is used, which has a huge impact on a community's ability to adapt, prepare, and recover from flood hazards.
0: Okay, that makes sense. But, I mean, who regularly talks about discussing flood terms? Probably just, like, weathermen and women, right? No, there are actually
1: tons of different people who should learn the correct terms for flood hazards from uh, marina workers, real estate agents, local government officials, insurance agents, Um, homeowners, teachers, business owners, scientists, even more should know about what terms to use correctly to identify these hazards. Especially when you are communicating to the general public, it is good to have a consensus about what terms mean, which is vital to getting across the same message in an effective manner. Have you checked
0: out your flood risk, Corinne? I have, and I was pretty shocked. In fact, I think most of our listeners would be really surprised how many people are affected by flooding in our coastal area. Based on what we've learned over the last few years, we know that floods can happen anywhere in Georgia, not just along the coast. What was a crazy number for me to wrap my head around was that one out of every five flood insurance claims come from moderate to low-risk areas. This means you don't have to live in a high-risk zone to be affected by flood. Having flood insurance means you're covered if groundwater rises and floods your home, something that isn't typically covered by a general home insurance policy in Georgia. We've all heard the phrase, come heck or high water. Apparently, that's pretty accurate. Imagine the damage just a few inches of flood water could do to your home. That's more than enough water to destroy floors, walls, and other possessions, costing you thousands in replacement costs if you don't have flood insurance.
1: Yeah, that's crazy to think about. In the last 15 years... 75% of Georgia's 159 counties have suffered enough flooding to warrant a federal disaster declaration, with flooding being blamed for about 500 million in damage just in 23 counties that received the federal disaster declarations. This damage included 20,000 homes, as well as businesses and other buildings. Sapelo's own swamp and Ugami weather station data, along with the National Weather Service's long-term data, was recently analyzed by our reserve manager, Dr. Doug Sampson. He reported that precipitation has had a pretty noticeable change comparing data from multiple generations. One change in patterns that relates to flooding was an increase in precipitation in April, June, and October on Sapelo. While there are other decreases and changes, including a noticeable decrease in precipitation in March and especially July, the definable rainy season we are used to seeing has definitely changed a bit over the last few decades, making preparation for flooding a bit difficult.
0: What I'm really worried about is that in the coming decades, NOAA projections show that Georgia will become warmer, and the coast in particular will most likely experience more severe floods. And that is why the Flood Literacy Project through the Georgia Department of Natural Resources' Coastal Resources Division is so important, Many people in our area don't understand the words being used in their insurance policies or what the weather forecast is actually predicting. They hear terms thrown around that sound like no big deal or have been used incorrectly so often that they have no real meaning anymore. People don't take the necessary precautions to save not only their property, but also their lives. Brittany, since you use flood literacy a little more in your work, could you go over some of the terms that are being used incorrectly? Oh, there's a bunch. The full glossary is linked in our description, but in
1: today's episode, we'll go over several key terms that are commonly misused or have kind of a poor context. For example, a 500-year-old flood is an old term for a flood that has a 1 in 500 chance of occurring in any given year. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to people. People hear that and they think that this is a type of flood that only occurs every 500 years. So why bother worrying about it? Uh, Calling it a 0.2% annual chance flood highlights that it can happen annually. The chances of it happening are just low. The same goes for a 1% annual chance flood, formerly known as a 100-year flood. This is a type of flood that can occur
0: every single year, regardless of when the last flood was. It's just a lower chance of occurring. Oh, it makes much more sense to call it that. I had no idea they could occur
1: back-to-back. And that's the problem. Many people don't understand just because it was used in old terms. Also included in the glossary are definitions for things like compound flooding and its association with total water level, both of which can be very difficult to accurately forecast and lead many people to falsely believe that they will not be affected by a local flood. Compound flooding occurs when a system is overwhelmed and cannot properly drain, leading to potential infrastructure impacts in areas where you don't normally think flooding will occur.
0: So it's kind of like if your bathtub has a clogged drain, but the tap is still running. Exactly. That's a great image for this. Talk about an emergency. Get it? Like the C-S-E-A? Yeah, even for us, that's a bad dad joke.
1: We can do better. Yes, it's definitely a scary thing to have approaching water. The water has to go somewhere, and eventually the system, or your tub in this case, cannot hold any more water, and it overflows into the surrounding area. Except if you live in an area that is low-lying coastal uh, plain, you face the compounding effects of storm surge, riverine overflow, and rainfall that can all come together to impact your risk of property damage. Predicting exactly how water will flow through these systems at exactly what point it will overburden the natural
0: defenses and drainages in place can be extremely difficult to predict. But even understanding terms like flash flooding versus storm surge can be an important thing for the public and professionals to read. Flood warning versus flood watch, knowing your flood zone and what it means, and understanding the terms insurance agencies are using to measure your risk is not just useful information, it is essential if you are living on the coast. And it's not just for the pros. Some terms are ones that even professionals outside
1: of coastal resiliency and flood prevention should learn to avoid. I know as a boat captain, I have said king tides many times without realizing how many different meanings there are out there for just that one word. It also has no real scientific definition for what constitutes a king tide. The term is a bit of a definition conundrum, is a king tide defined by its cause, which is lunar and solar constituents, or by its effects, the observed water levels. Often that's not very clear. A king tide can just be what someone calls an especially high tide in October or April. Perigean spring tides, however, occur three to four times a year and can be consistently and scientifically measured and therefore accurately defined. Yet, still, king tides is a term that you will often hear from even trained professionals because it's what they're familiar with saying, even though its definition can change from person to person. I myself catch myself saying it fairly often, unfortunately.
0: So who's in charge here? <laughs> Who decided on the correct terms to use? Is there a water work group, the flooding advisory board, splash zone society?
1: <laughs> yeah, the Georgia Flood Literacy Task Force is actually who's in charge. And it was a huge collaborative effort made up of many members of our community, from local academic institutions like University of Georgia, the University of Georgia Marine Extension, the Skidaway Institute of Oceanography, Georgia Sea Grant and Georgia Tech, and emergency management groups like FEMA, Chatham County Emergency Management, even federal agencies like NOAA and the National Weather Service, all partnered with local government managers and municipalities like Savannah Metro Planning Commission and the Camden County Public Works Department, even some nonprofits like the Nature Conservancy and the Georgia Conservancy, through the leadership of the Coastal Resources Division of the Georgia DNR, the Georgia Environmental Protection Division, and the Georgia Department of Transportation, along with the Coastal Regional Commission of Georgia. That's quite a lot of people in one collaboration. And apparently, even the media had input on the task force, like the
0: Brunswick News. Wow, you're right. That's a ton of groups coming together to produce this information.
1: Megan Angelina, a Coastal Resource Division's wetlands biologist, spearheaded this project as a Sea Grant Fellow. We have her on our show today. Welcome, Megan. Can you tell us a little bit about why we needed a task force to begin with?
2: We were interested in knowing what flood terms are being used and how they're being used among professionals in the field. So, when forming this group, it was important to target many people from different organizations and affiliations. Although their work had parallel focuses, many of these task force members did not interact frequently, so the various perspectives have been significant to the project. The task force came to a consensus on what was important to include for various flood term definitions based on their experiences, survey results, and other resources. The flood term definitions were then used to make two versions of a glossary of flood terms, one for professionals and one for the public. The two documents are nearly identical, but the public breaks down any technical language. One example of a flood term definition found within these glossaries is coastal resilience, which is the ability of a coastal community to adapt to changing conditions and withstand and recover from a societal, economic, or ecological disruption.
0: Thanks for that example, Megan. It must have been like herding cats trying to get that broad collective of professionals to work together. But in projects like this, it is definitely important. You mentioned surveys to get more input from both the public and various other organizations that will use the flood literacy glossary. Do you think getting public input was an important step for the project and why?
2: Yes. So we distributed two surveys, one for professionals and one for the public to attain more information on flood literacy. The purpose of the stakeholders, or professional survey, was to understand what flood terms are being used by various organizations or individuals, how those terms are being used, and also to identify potential term conflicts. The purpose of the public engagement survey was to understand public perspective of flooding, hazard communication and flood terminology, and how they best receive information. Involving people and making your message clear and relatable are important ingredients in the recipe for resilient communities. This was an important step to make sure we were expanding the number of professionals to learn more about how these terms are being used outside of the task force and also to hear from people that are hearing and interpreting the terms which make up the message that they use to make decisions about flooding in their communities. The meanings of terms may need to be broken down to be easily understood by people of various backgrounds, professions, and perspectives. If people do not understand or care about the message, it could be hard to encourage them to react in ways we suggest. If a community is engaged, they will learn how they can recover from disasters, and how to prepare for the next one, and ultimately, they can work toward becoming resilient.
1: Yeah, these projects definitely seem to have better reception from end users of different backgrounds when they can recognize their concerns are being listened to and incorporated into the final product. Was there anything that you learned from being a part of this project that maybe you were not expecting?
2: I learned just how many ways these terms are being used. I came into that position with the knowledge of how I always defined and used them, but getting these multiple perspectives was very valuable. Terms that I, or the other co-lead of the project, never expected to have multiple meanings or uses, did. And we learned this based on the perspectives and understanding of the other task force members. The surveys and input from all the task force members helped us to determine what to recommend. I learned just how much of a problem flood term conflicts can be, and how we as professionals decide to use these terms can really have an impact on how people of our community are making decisions.
0: In any conversation, it's really important to make sure everyone is on the same page, especially when it comes to topics like flooding and disaster preparedness. This flood literacy glossary is a great tool to assist with that. Thanks, Megan. For more information on Megan and the task force's great work, check out the link in our description to the flood literacy story map. There is great information not only on flood terms, but also about resiliency, green infrastructure, and more. Which reminds me. So, Corinne, my husband and I had a huge argument because he accidentally flooded the
1: kitchen. I was sure there was water under our freezer. Oh no, is everything okay now? Oh yeah, we've sorted it out now. It's all water under the fridge.
0: <laughs> 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 I told you that was a good one. That happened to me once. Everything in my kitchen ended up sinking under three feet of water with the exception of a carton of ice cream and some root beer. They stayed afloat.
1: (laughs) 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 Yeah. So guys, if you like what you're listening to or have some feedback on how we can improve, dad jokes aside, we're keeping those. Make sure to leave us a rating on whatever platform you are listening to us from. If you're listening through the podcast website, send us an email letting us know how we are doing. Neither of us claim to be good podcasters, so feedback is much appreciated as we muddle our
0: way through our first podcast together. For more information about any of the topics we covered today or to submit your question that may be featured in our upcoming episodes, please email us at signer.socials at gmail.com. That's S-I-N-E-R-R dot at gmail.com.
1: Thank you for listening to Sapelo Nerds, a coastal science podcast brought to you by the Sapelo Island National Estuarine Research Reserve. Please check back for more episodes released on the 1st and the 15th of each month. And that's
2: the Sapelo Sound.